1: legalizefreedom.com
0: Greetings and welcome once again to legalizefreedom.com I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Bernardo Castro, who joins us to discuss his book The Idea of the World, a Multidisciplinary Argument the mental nature of reality. In his most cogent and compelling work to date, Kastrup's theory of reality offers a grounded alternative to the frenzy of unrestrained abstractions and unexamined assumptions in philosophy and science today. The idea of the world makes a rigorous case for the primacy of mind in nature, examining what can be learned about the nature of reality based on conceptual parsimony, straightforward logic and empirical evidence from fields as diverse as physics and neuroscience. It compiles an overarching case for idealism, the notion that reality is essentially mental. The author begins by exposing the logical fallacies and internal contradictions of the reigning physicalist paradigm and popular alternatives such as panpsychism. The main objections to idealism are also systematically refuted. The book closes with an analysis of the hidden psychological motivations behind mainstream physicalism and the implications of idealism for the way we relate to each other and the world. The view of reality presented here makes sense of the many mysteries which mainstream materialist science simply cannot fathom. It reconciles the classical and quantum worlds and disposes of the so-called hard problem of consciousness. It may even hold the secret to the origin and meaning of life. Hello and welcome, Bernardo, and thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com.
1: Pleasure to talk to you again, Greg.
0: Today, Bernardo, we're going to be talking about your latest book, Uh, The Idea of the World, a Multidisciplinary Argument for the Mental Nature of Reality. Before we jump into that, just for listeners who don't know, give them a brief synopsis of your background and your work in general.
1: I have a formal education in uh, computer engineering, computer science. I have a PhD in computer science. I'm getting now a second PhD uh, in philosophy, philosophy of mind and ontology. Um, I have worked in uh, physics laboratories. I've worked at CERN in, in Geneva, in Switzerland, uh, in the mid to late 90s. I've worked at Philips Research uh, in the Netherlands. So my background is mainly science and philosophy combined, and uh to earn my living, I basically do corporate strategy, <laughs> which sort of also guarantees my independence of thought, since I, I don't owe uh, uh, explanations to anyone regarding my positions regarding metaphysics and philosophy of mind. Um, I am the owner of my own thoughts. I am not fighting for tenure or to satisfy the department <laughs> and anything like that, so long as I help my company. Make money. They are happy with me. They don't care about what my philosophical positions are.
0: Anybody who's listened to any of our previous interviews, which are all linked up on this interview page, by the way, will have quite a good idea of what we're going to be discussing today in general. Or even anyone who's just listened to the recorded introduction that I did on the subject of your latest book. Now, this one's a little bit different because it's actually a collection of articles that uh, peer reviewed articles from, from various journals. And this is a different approach for you, and it's been very clever, I have to say, the way you've gone about this. So just say something about how this uh, setting out your thesis here differs from your previous books.
1: So before this book, I had written six books, elaborating on my philosophy, on my ideas. But those earlier books were, were targeted at uh, the general public, uh, the average person with some education who could follow the argument, and... Um, so it's a fairly elaborate uh, uh, um, argument over six books. You have a lot of space to to elaborate on your ideas, but it didn't meet uh, the standards of rigor and conceptual clarity that reign in academia today, and therefore uh, my philosophy didn't have sufficient penetration in academia. And and I come from academia. I come from that world. So this was a gap in my corpus, if you will, a gap in, in in the body of my work that back in 2016 i felt i need to to address and to close that gap so since then uh, early 2016 i have been working on articulating my ideas in an academic way in a very rigorous conceptually clear way and and in doing that i've published a number of uh, articles in in mainstream academic journals i ended up putting together uh, a second phd thesis which was uh, recently approved um, in order to, to to address that gap and to address that community. So nobody could turn around and say, hey, Bernardo, yes, uh, nice books you have. But when it comes down to it, when it comes down to a very hard-nosed, skeptical analysis of what you're saying, you don't really, you know, meet the criteria that one would expect from serious philosophical ideas ser- serious philosophical proposals well uh, that criticism now cannot be made where well, it can be made but it would be answered very quickly uh, against my philosophy and so that's the purpose of this book at the same time the book is not only about addressing academia it, that's that's the origin of the book but uh, it's not only a collection of uh, of uh, academic papers uh, journal uh, articles I've weaved into it a number of preamble chapters, a lot of introductory material in order to to, to sort of sew these articles together in a coherent storyline that makes sense from beginning to end and which is accessible for the average educated reader as well. So it's not a purely academic book, it's a book that also aims to to be accessible uh, to the average reader. Uh, it's a difficult trade-off to do. Uh, but I thought that even the average reader would like to be able to access material that meets the standards of rigor uh, uh, that prevail in academia, uh, uh, even to give himself or herself intellectual permission uh, to really open up to, to the ideas and the arguments in the book, knowing that uh, those ideas and those arguments have been uh, peer-reviewed, uh, by academics and, and, and judged worthy of, of consideration. And in fact, they have even given me a second PhD thesis. So if it's good for that, probably it's good, uh, uh, good enough, uh, for the general reader, hopefully.
0: Yeah. This is by far the most rigorous, uh, if we can take it as a, as a united whole now that you've put it together, by far the most rigorous thing, uh, that you've written. And I enjoyed all your previous books. And yes, it's, the ideas can be quite complex and challenging, especially if you're new to them. And there were certainly points going through the book where I reached, you know, a particular juncture where I then had to go back and reread a section of earlier section, just to clarify it again in my mind. And it's one of those books where even if you're familiar with some of these concepts, I find myself anyway, reading some of it out loud. (laughs) So I could, (laughs) I could just really absorb it. Right. What is the guy saying here? You know, but You've mentioned about some of the issues with your previous books and how people have, you know, if people have drawn any criticism against him, where that's come from and how you've tried to address that. And for me, this is so clear what you've set out here. This now needs to be refuted. It's no longer good enough. Not that it ever was, but critics cannot just say wishy-washy ideas, woo-woo, uh, misinterpreting quantum physics. This is clear. So it is, the, the ball is in the other court
1: now. My critics now, uh, they can't get away with just dismissing my argument and saying that, oh, it's just woo, it's just flaky. No, no, that's not enough anymore. If they want to engage and criticize what I'm doing now, they have to go into the details of it. They have to go into the substance and point out where exactly my argument is going wrong and why. So the discussion now has to be a substantive one. Uh, I am not Simply dismissible anymore, I think. And that was precisely the goal I had in mind. If, if people want to engage, I am, I'm fair game. I'm very willing to engage with my critics, but uh, on substance, not on superficialities.
0: Okay. Well, let's uh, move on then by talking about, we'll begin by talking about some of the main problems plaguing current ideas on the nature of reality. And it's quite simply that no matter how elegant or complete some of the more commonly accepted theories of reality are none of them account for everything as it were in the realm of our experience the origin and nature of consciousness uh the origin nature even of life itself to some extent every theory is a kind of swiss cheese theory of reality you know like <laughs> it's full of holes as it were what you set out in your thesis and you're, you're very methodical about this. You move from point to point, from problem to problem, objection to objection, and say this accounts for this. And I haven't read anything in terms of a theory of reality where, at the end of it, there there, there wasn't any glaring question still left open, or glossed over, or you know, brushed under the carpet, as it were.
1: I'm forced to do this because you see, if, if you're defending uh, a formulation of physicalism, if you are supporting the idea that reality is fundamentally physical or material, and that consciousness somehow emerges out of particular arrangements of matter, if you are in that stream, uh, because it is the mainstream, so to say, because it is implicitly accepted by our culture as the most tenable, most likely alternative, you can get away with a fairly superficial elaboration, because you have the momentum of the mainstream behind you. But when you come from from a corner, like I am coming and saying, hey, uh, uh, consciousness doesn't arise from matter. Matter arises from consciousness. My reduction base is consciousness. I will explain everything in terms of consciousness, not consciousness in terms of something else. This is so counter- counterintuitive in this day and age for our culture today, not in certain moments in the past, certainly not in the future, but today it's very counterintuitive. So y- y- you cannot afford to make a a incomplete case because you will be pinned down exactly on the points that you don't elaborate on. So I am forced to really unturn every stone, to really cover every base uh, in order to remain in the debate, only to remain in a debate. I need to do that. I'm held to different standards than somebody elaborating on a formulation of mainstream physicalism.
0: Yes, as you say, it's, all of this feels so countered Intuitive what you set out. There are certainly dimensions of your thesis that in my experience, you you know, you've been putting out, you're not the only person putting some of these ideas forward, but when they've bumped up against the mainstream, whether it's academia or the general public, there's been a real failure of basic thought processes. You'll say someone, okay, consider this possibility about the nature of reality. And they're like, yeah, okay, right. I listen to what you say. No, say it again. You know, whereas you feel that you've been quite clear about it. I think you refer to this or something similar to this in the book as intellectual afflictions, and it's this failure of of the very basic thought processes regarding this, and that's something that, of course, you have to get over. But but again, you can't pander to that, or even really allow for it. You've just had to set out your case, and if people can't grasp what you're talking about, well, they need to go over it again or leave it or whatever.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's not even abnormal. I mean, it, it, it's normal in the context of a culture that a large part of our thinking is based on certain assumptions mm. that we take for granted, that we never had to examine critically, uh, because they are mainstream assumptions, because the majority, even the authorities tell you, well, this is what you can assume. It's safe to assume this. So we... we we absorb those assumptions. We take them on board sort of uh, uncritically without examining them. They seem to be self-evident. Um, and when somebody's making a case like I am making, um, I need to review those assumptions critically, uh, sometimes discard them and offer alternatives. The problem is that when you are touching on what people already have, the prejudice, and I don't mean this in a negative sense, the prejudice in the sense that... Uh, Uh, These are unexamined assumptions. When people already have certain prejudices that they take for granted, if you're going to challenge those, uh, you will meet with a sort of a knee-jerk reaction of skepticism uh, because you're challenging the underlying layers of people's thinking, layers that they are not examining, that they are not putting up for for, for questioning. Um, So you have to counter uh, the enormous momentum of our cultural assumptions uh in order to make a clean case and often you're not given the opportunity to do that because you sort of you know you're you're spitting on the idols here uh this is iconoclasm uh, in a cer- in a certain sense so for people to to really uh understand what i'm saying either they have to be already open to this they already have to have a suspicion that the mainstream narrative doesn't really work out that it's not really tenable so they are already open to something else or they really have to police themselves and have the discipline to really read what i'm saying or listen to what i'm saying instead of listening to what they think i'm saying to what they assume i would be saying well, in fact, it's not at all <laughs> what I'm saying. Um, and with idealism, this this idea that uh, consciousness is the only fundamental aspect of reality and everything else arises within consciousness, because this idea has been historically associated with religions, both in the East and in the West, uh, when you start arguing for this, people immediately categorize you, maybe even subconsciously, uh, in the religious category, in the spiritual category. Uh, and they will throw at you, you know, a, a, a set of ready-made uh, uh, criticisms that, uh, that they think is applicable to everybody who comes from that angle, from that spiritual angle. Uh, well, in fact, that's not at all the angle I'm coming from. I'm not coming from the angle of uh, uh, first-person experience, spiritual insight, um, meditative insight. I, I, I'm not coming from that angle at all in this book. Uh, I'm coming from the angle of, you know, logic, internal consistency, coherence, empirical grounding, and parsimony, which are the values uh, of of science, the values that we hold dear today as guides towards the truth. Uh, but people have to give me a chance to make my case uh, and to be judged in a more or less impartial way, instead of projecting onto me and and my argument what they think should apply to anybody who talks about consciousness being primary and so on.
0: It'll be interesting to see whether your book gets um, filed in the mind, body, spirit section of the bookstore or in the science one. I know that <laughs> there is some overlap there, but it'll be interesting. You know, it'd be, imagine your face if you find it under new age or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but um no, but there are, as you say, there, there's these unexamined assumptions, not just amongst the general public, but even amongst the, uh, academic and scientific communities there are a number of ideas about fundamental or fundamental reality that are taken as read people might say oh well we know we don't have all the details but it's this is basically how it happened i'm thinking about things like the big bang for example in terms of the origin of the universe this is a given we don't know all the details bit fuzzy but more or less that's what happened the origin of life you know the um primordial soup again we don't really know how it happened but yeah that's basically that's what that's what went on through to consciousness itself uh, theories of evolution you know consciousness being an epiphenomenon of the brain so all of this stuff over time hardens and coalesces into a sort of pseudo fact that then becomes a sort of a fact you know i've certainly opened discussions with people questioning the Big Bang or questioning evolution certainly happens but you know what the different uh, parameters of that might be and their their immediate case or their immediate attitude has been very very dismissive like these are so well established and accepted across the board how you can even have questions about the Big Bang or about (laughs) evolution it's just you know you're not allowed to have those debates anymore because it's settled
1: Yeah, I mean, this has happened again and again in history. This is the idea of the paradigms that uh, Thomas Kuhn uh, wrote about uh, already in the 60s. I mean, when Newton came up with this idea of gravity as an invisible force that acted between objects at uh, great distances, like the gravity of the Earth pulling on the moon from across space without anything in between, when he came up with that, he proposed this idea in an era in which uh, the values of science entailed, or implied at least, that any scientific theory that made sense should be reducible to uh, 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 physical corpuscles, or physical particles uh, 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 exerting an influence on each other through touch. In other words, causality had to happen through touch. For something to have an effect, it had to touch something else, and it had to be solid and material. And there comes Newton saying that there is this magical, mystical force called gravity that would, you know, pull on bodies instantaneously from a great distance. This was considered wacky stuff at the time. For decades, Newton was not taken uh, seriously, uh, at least in several countries. Um, and then it was just normal afterwards. Of course, there are these forces that act at great distances and not through touch. Magnetism was another one, electromagnetism, General Maxwell's stuff, until at some point we realized that, hey, hey, that's not really how it happens. Gravity is not really a magical force that acts at great distances. Gravity is just an effect of mass on the fabric of space-time. It bends the fabric of space-time, and the effect of that looks like attraction from a distance, but it's just the fabric of space-time being bent. Yeah, now we all accept that, but if you think about this, you no, know, the fabric of space-time, it's like space-time is a thing that can be bent and twisted, and we accept that, although You know, for a five-year-old child, it's highly counterintuitive. So this has been the history of science and philosophy. Uh, What is considered tenable, reasonable, acceptable, plausible uh, in one era is considered magic and woo in another era. Uh, and, and, And the thing evolves this way. Hopefully, it evolves in a way that we go forward although there is reasonable evidence that it's not really like that. It doesn't go really only forward. It goes up and down and, and it's arbitrary. Uh, but that's that's uh, an aspect of human culture. We have to deal with it and, and do the best we can within that context. I mean, today, I, my, the ideas I'm putting forward are considered uh, uh, yeah, counterintuitive or, you know, it's not what you expect. Uh, but there was a time... You know, in the Hindu's valley, three to five thousand years ago, in which it was uh, self-evident. Of course, the basis of everything is consciousness, um, and there will be a time in the future, maybe a not so distant future, in which it will be self-evident again. And these future people will look back at, at the 19th, 20th, and early 21st century, and will say, "Those people were crazy." They thought that there was this magical thing called matter outside and independent of consciousness, which somehow organized itself in certain structures and magically gave rise to consciousness. How absurd that was. Those people were nuts. This will happen. (laughs) Wait and see.
0: Well, thinking about theories of reality uh, in the context of the the mind-matter dichotomy, which is one of the main issues in all of this, uh, this relates to one of the main unexamined assumptions and to quote from your book, the existence of a material world outside and independent of mind is a theoretical inference and also a quote, and it is an explanatory abstraction. This, this is one of the main... Either stumbling blocks in theories of reality or one of the main issues that tends to be pushed aside, the so-called hard problem of consciousness, which you're able to dispense with. And it doesn't take you that long to do it, really. And essentially, in the, concept, in the context of your thesis, mind and matter are not at the same level, as it were. You mentioned matter arising within mind. That is one of the... If you Google hard problem of consciousness, you will come across so much content from so many different disciplines, from so many different perspectives... Either as I say, stuck on this or dismissing it as somehow not important or, you know, we just need to set that aside in, in order to move forward. But if you're having to do that when you're, when you're setting out um, a theory of reality, then maybe you need to go back and, and reexamine your theory rather than taking a massive elephants in the room and just moving them to another room, basically.
1: <laughs> yes. The idea of matter as something outside and independent of mind. Uh, has become almost self-evident because it is a cultural habit. Uh, If you examine it carefully, uh, you see that what we actually have as evidence uh, are the contents of perception. So, of course, I'm not denying the perceived world. There are things that I can touch and feel and see and hear, and they seem to be completely independent of my own personal mentation. Uh, If I... I park my car in my garage at the end of the day and I lock the door and come up and sleep. The next morning when I go down, my car will be there, right there where I left it. And it seems that it was right there even when I was asleep. So there obviously is a world outside and independent of our personal mentation, our personal consciousness, that seems to hold its state independent of our observation. And that world presents itself to us as the contents of perception, the things we see, hear, touch, smell, taste, which I do not deny. What I question is a step that we smoothly make after this. And the step is, the step is, okay, that world that I perceive and which seems to be independent of my personal mentation is made of matter fundamentally outside and independent of consciousness itself. Not only my personal consciousness, but independent of consciousness as an ontological category, as a type of existent, it is fundamentally outside consciousness. Well, that step is not granted empirically, because all I can experience are the contents of perception, which are themselves mental. They are experiences. What I see is an experience. What I hear is an experience. The table that I touch and feel is very concrete and palpable. Well, what is concreteness and palpability but qualities of experience? So all I can access is mentality. When I say that the contents of my perception originally arise from something outside mentality, that is a theoretical inference. And the goal of this inference is to explain why the world I perceive seems to be so independent of my personal mentation. It seems to stay there and hold its state, regardless of whether I'm looking at it or not, and we all seem to share this same world. Now, it's an understandable theoretical step, but it is a theoretical step, and it has a big problem. The big problem is, once you say that the basis of reality is fundamentally unconscious matter that can only be described through quantities, like mass, charge, uh, momentum, spin, uh, spatial-temporal position, and so forth, geometrical relationships, and so forth. If that's all there actually is, you are left with an enormous gap between those quantities and the qualities of experience. What it is like to see the color red. What it is like to have a bellyache. What it is like to fall in love. There's nothing about charge, mass, momentum, geometrical relationships that allow me to deduce what it feels like to have a bellyache, or to fall in love, or to see the color red in an apple. That's the hard problem of consciousness, and it arises as a direct direct consequence of this theoretical inference that the real world out there is made of matter fundamentally outside and independent of consciousness, a world that is fundamentally quantitative and not qualitative, Quality somehow being produced, conjured up by the brain in ways that we do not understand. Well, once you face such a fundamental problem because of a theoretical inference you made, the, the logical thing to do is to go back to the inference and review it, because it's clearly uh, 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 throwing a curveball at you. It's clearly clearly putting you in a position that it's completely untenable. Is there a different way of explaining why the universe we inhabit seems to be so independent of our personal volition, of our personal mentation, that it doesn't care about what we want, doesn't care about what we imagine, it unfolds according to regular regular laws, the laws of physics, and we all seem to inhabit it. Is there a way to explain all this without postulating anything different from consciousness itself? Could the universe out there be a mental phenomenon that presents itself on the screen of our perception as the perceive, perceived physical world? That's what I try to do in the book. And, of course, that circumvents the hard problem of consciousness altogether because it doesn't postulate this ontological category, namely matter outside and independent of consciousness, to begin with.
0: As you've said, the idea that all existence consists solely of ideas or thoughts, that basically it is in mind, is very counterintuitive because of this world, apparently solid, shared and enduring world that we all experience. But even though you've set out your basic thesis many times before in your other books, again, to repeat how clear this new collection of writing is, it really resonated with me and it brought home something that I had sort of intuited as well. It feels right that, you know, your psyche, mine, that of everyone listening to this is an individuated unit of mind at large, disconnected from mind at large, but not fragmented, and you use the word dissociation, and this little understood concept goes a long way to explaining this. Basically, if reality is within mind, then it's simply that we have, as as these individuated units, we've temporarily lost access to the mastermind, the overmind, whatever it happens to be. But I find it very interesting that a lot of us do intuit this. And I think that's where a lot of the um, ancient wisdom traditions seem to overlap with some of your ideas, where they're coming from as well.
1: Yes, and uh, what helps now is uh, the amount of data we've we've amassed over the past 15 years or so with modern neuroimaging techniques on the psychiatric phenomenon of dissociation. And this is what allows us to, to dress these old ideas with modern language uh, empirically grounded language that uh, modern people can relate to and have less of a spiritual uh, sound for those who are prejudiced against spirituality. Uh, the phenomenon of dissociation, uh, dissociative identity disorder, is well known and characterized in psychiatry today. There are people who manifest what they call dissociated alters, multiple centers of consciousness within a single personal psyche, within a single personal mind. Uh, in the old, the old days, it used to be called multiple personality disorder. There's also plenty of evidence that the different alters or the different dissociated personalities of a of a person suffering from this condition, they can be simultaneously conscious or co-conscious. They can even uh, uh, fight with each other for control of the body. Um, and although for a long time, uh, extreme forms of dissociation, like I am describing, have been called into question whether they really happen, whether the patient might be confabulating or telling stories, so to say, in order to evoke PT and to get attention. Today we know that that's not the case because of modern uh, neuroimaging. We have now objective evidence uh, for uh, the reality of uh, extreme forms of dissociation. And we know that different dissociative processes uh, can even be identified uh, through neuroimaging. There is something these dissociated processes look like under a brain scanner, a functional brain scanner. So what the the idea I'm putting forward, and of course it's much more uh, thoroughly elaborated upon in the book than we can do in a a brief interview, but the the, the gist of the idea is that each living being is itself a dissociated alter, uh, a dissociated personality, so to say, of uh, a universal consciousness. And in the same way that our conscious inner life appears to other people in the form of our body, our brain, brain activity that can be measured through a neuroimaging and so forth, in the same way that this conscious inner life appears to others in the form of a physical construct that we call the biological body, uh, the conscious inner life of the inanimate universe as a whole uh, uh, presents itself to us in the form of what we call the inanimate universe, that physical construct with stars and galaxies and galaxy clusters and so on uh, that we describe as the physical universe. And studies have even shown that at its, at, at, at its largest scales, simulations have shown that, at its largest scales, the universe, in fact, does look like a nervous system. Uh, its pattern of interconnections and distribution of, of mass, uh, uh, including uh, uh, um, uh, dark matter and dark energy, uh, those patterns of distribution and interconnect, uh, they are mathematically very similar to the way our neurons and the synapses organize and arrange themselves uh, in a biological brain. Which again suggests, and that's a key thesis in the book, that what we call matter is nothing more than the way conscious inner life looks like from across a dissociative boundary. My conscious inner life looks like my body, the body of Bernardo Castro, with its brain, its nervous system, its nervous system activity, and so on, when observed from across my dissociative boundary. In other words, from the point of view of other people looking at me. And the inanimate universe looks like what we call the physical universe when observed from my perspective, which is also across a dissociative boundary, my dissociative boundary. And that's all there is to matter. That's all that matter is. It is the experiential appearance of experiential inner life when it's presenting itself from across a dissociative boundary.
0: Yes, metabolizing life marks a boundary of an altar of universal consciousness. So that may or may not be a straight quote from your book, but it's like our five senses and whatever the other sixth sense, which seems to deliver information or intuitions from somewhere else other than the five senses is this boundary of this individuated unit of consciousness and the 3D supposedly material universe all around us right now. If I look across the room here and I look out the window, there's a bus out there, there's a coffee shop, there's a hotel. These things are the boundary of that universal consciousness as it appears
1: Yes, yes. Uh, I'll I'll say it again, because uh, maybe repetition uh, uh, helps. Uh, The idea itself is very simple. What we call matter is simply the appearance of conscious inner life observed from across a dissociative boundary. Everything you observe that's outside me, I am observing from across my dissociative boundary. The dissociative boundary that defines me as an alter, as a dissociated personality, if you will, of universal consciousness. The screen of my perception is populated by appearances of conscious, the conscious inner life of the inanimate universe as a whole, and the appearances of other altars, which look like, to me, as other living beings, the, the, the metabolizing body of other living beings. My girlfriend, uh, my cats, uh, uh, the cricket in my garden. Uh, even the bacteria on on, 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 on on my toilet, if I could see them without a microscope, uh, I think every living creature, as it, it it presents itself to us on the screen of our perception, is merely the appearance of another dissociated altar of universal consciousness, and the inanimate universe, the non biological non organic universe, is what remains of. Universal consciousness. When you remove all alters from it, that also has an appearance. We also call that appearance matter, because matter is simply this: the appearance of conscious inner life when observed from across a dissociative boundary.
0: Okay, a couple of massive questions here that cut to the heart of of everything. What was there? How were things before alters formed? When? How? Why? would alters form? What was experienced before that? And then the question of what you call in the book TWE, that which experiences, which is sort of the ground of this, what we've referred to as universal consciousness, you say that has to be an ontological primitive. We can't keep going back and back and back. We have to allow that that simply is. So it's the nature of that ontological ontological primitive and why alters, if there indeed there is any discernible reason, might have formed. Now, of course, the potential answers to this, again, tie in with a lot of ancient wisdom ideas, but I'll let you present your thoughts on those issues just in the context of your book.
1: There are lots to unpack uh, in what you just said. Let's start from from the beginning, uh, that which experiences or universal consciousness. I use these two uh, names for the same thing. Every theory of nature about what nature is has to have what philosophers call an ontological primitive, an element in a reduction base. Now, what is this? This is the following. An explanation always consists in a reduction. You explain one thing in terms of another. In other words, you reduce one thing to the other. You can explain a body in terms of organ systems. You can explain organ systems in terms of tissues, tissues in terms of cells cells in terms of molecules, molecules in terms of atoms, atoms in terms of subatomic particles. You have to stop somewhere. You cannot keep on explaining one thing in terms of another or reducing one thing to another forever. At some point, you will will hit rock bottom. That rock bottom is your ontological primitive. It's the thing that simply is in nature. It simply is. It does not have an explanation. However you should be able to explain everything else in terms of it, in terms of that ontological primitive. That is the game. If you can put forward a minimum set of ontological primitives, ideally only one, in terms of which you can show that you can explain everything else, then you've hit jackpot. That's the best explanation you can possibly have uh, uh, for, for the nature of reality. Physicalists try to do that in terms of a large set of ontological primitives, all the basic subatomic particles uh, uh, in in the standard model. Uh, And then they fail to reduce the qualities of experience to that large set of ontological primitives. So it's not only an untenable theory of the nature of reality, it's also a non-parsimonious one. What I try to do in the book is to say, look, there is only universal consciousness. Let me now try to explain everything else in terms of, of the excitations, the patterns of excitation of, of universal consciousness. If I succeed in doing that, then not only do I explain more than physicalism, because now I can explain the quality of, of experience as excitations of universal consciousness without the hard problem of consciousness, and I also have a minimum set of ontological primitives, namely only one universal consciousness, itself, which has certain attributes, like it's self-excitable, it can excite itself according to certain patterns, and so on. So that's DWE, that's universal consciousness. It's an ontological primitive uh, to which I can reduce everything else in nature. Uh, so that was one key point of your question. I have to remember now the second. Okay, before this universal consciousness dissociated into multiple alters, or, in other words, before the rise of life from non-life, before life arose, before abiogenesis, which is the technical term for when life arises from inorganic matter. Uh, What was going on in the universe then? Well, there was still universal consciousness. This universal consciousness had no alters, but it still had patterns of excitation, which correspond uh, uh, to the history of the universe before life arose. They didn't look like the universe we see, it didn't look like matter, because again, matter is what uh, the excitations of consciousness look like from across a dissociative boundary. So before there was a dissociative boundary, there was no matter, there was nothing to be touched, to be seen, to be heard, because sense perception is perception across a dissociative boundary but there were the corresponding patterns of excitation of universal consciousness. If there were a living being in the early universe, that living being would have seen the early universe physically. But that living being was not there, per hypothesis, yet there were still the corresponding patterns of excitation that would have excited the screen of perception of this living being and create the image, the perceptual image of the early universe. Now, in terms of experience, there were there were no perceptions. There was only the first-person uh, point of view of universal consciousness. In other words, there was nobody to look at the activity of universal consciousness from across the dissociative boundary. There was only what it was like to be universal consciousness. There was only the first-person experience, not the second or third-person experience, of the early universe. And we cannot fathom that. We cannot fathom what it would have been like, what it was like to be universal consciousness before the rise of life, before the first altar ever formed. Because, you see, the, uh, the brains and the logic of uh, uh, evolved primates on planet Earth uh, do not necessarily have the capability to fathom that, to fathom that which sort of encompasses it Uh, that of which it is but a tiny phenomenon. Uh, So we shouldn't even try. Uh, But the theory uh, uh, um, is coherent in that sense.
0: An enormous penny has just dropped in my mind regarding something I read a few years ago, and and what you have just said has made perfect sense of it. I don't know if you've ever read an author called Owen Barfield,
1: that's oh, I did. I I had his book in my hands like two hours ago.
0: Wow. Okay, so I read in his book, Saving the Appearances. That was
1: a book I had in my hands,
0: yeah. Well, wow, there you go. So I was driven to that by author and former guest on here as well, Gary Lachman. And in Saving the Appearances, Barfield, I'm paraphrasing now, but I remember reading about the early universe, and he said that nothing that happens prior to the uh arising of consciousness that's you know his way of expressing it in the early universe nothing that we look back and and sort of calculate or you know think that it may have happened actually happened but what we've worked out would be a pretty good description of what would have been observable had there been any conscious consciousness to observe it so now what you said makes perfect sense
1: it's not only Barfield. I mean, Barfield is in a long line of philosophers that have been trying to say the same thing, uh, and each one of us just quotes it in, 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 in the language of, of his or her time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what you're saying, uh, I, I know exactly what you're alluding to. Uh, Barfield is trying to make sense of the idea that, okay, representations are something that require an, an observer, a, 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 an agent that represents what is out there. And the representation is not perception. Schopenhauer used the same word, representations. He qualified it as intuitive representations or perceptual representations. It's something that arises in the the intellect of an observing agent. And it represents something else which is itself out there. So before there were representing agents, in my terminology, before there were alters of universal consciousness and dissociative boundaries that give rise to representation, there was still the thing in itself the noumena of Kant, or the unrepresented of Barfield. Uh, um, uh, but what, I, what I'm what i saying, and Barfield also hinted at it very strongly, uh, is that the noumena, the thing in itself, which is out there, before representation, is itself mental. It is itself of an experiential nature. It is itself patterns of excitation of universal consciousness, that are playing out and unfolding across the, the dissociative boundary of the respective observer. So, the, people have been trying to say this throughout history. Uh, I'm certainly not original. What I'm trying to do is to ground that idea, that ancient idea, that ancient insight uh, in modern language, in, in modern empirical data, and in a way that is uh, internally consistent from a logical perspective and which fits with the values that are predominating in our time, the values of parsimony, logic, and empirical grounding, and so on.
0: Now, with with my next point, I'm not sure if I'm paraphrasing your book or even semi-quoting it, but I don't want to be presenting a question to you like it's a thought of mine, but if I have pulled it directly from your book. Um, However, we have no reason to believe that universal consciousness has similar cognitive processes to us, it may not be self-reflective. It may not make choices. With that in mind, so to speak, I wonder if the formation of these altars that, that we are again does serve a purpose to evolve, progress, whether there's a, a development here that we're part of, that it's not, it's not sort of a random byproduct of something that maybe there was something that there's a, um, A purpose, I know I hate to use that word sometimes because of the overtones that people, you know, religious overtones that people project (laughs) onto it, but you know, there's a purpose to the development that we're part of.
1: Yes, I I think there is a a sensed instinctual purpose. I think uh, deliberate thought, self-reflective thought, metacognitive apprehension, I think these are uh, capabilities that have evolved Evolved in, in animals up to us, that they have achieved the apex in, in human beings. Human beings are highly self-reflective. They not only experience; they know that they experience. They don't only think; they turn their thoughts into objects of meta-thoughts, and those meta-thoughts into objects of meta-meta-thoughts. In other words, I can think about how I think. I can think about my emotions. I can evaluate my own way of behaving and, and judge it and that's metacognition conscious metacognition and i think only human beings as far as we know are capable of that uh, i don't think universal consciousness at large beyond human beings the, the consciousness that underlies the unfolding of the inanimate not or, uh, inorganic universe i don't think that has this capacity this capacity for conscious metacognition in other words it doesn't make deliberate choices it doesn't plan things out deliberately. Uh, But it does unfold according to volition. You could call that instinctual volition. It's the kind of volition that we experience, for instance, when we choose to take our first step in the morning with our left or our right foot. We make that choice. It's an instinctual choice. It's driven by some kind of preference, even if it is a bodily preference. It's instinctive. It's not deliberate. We don't set out, to metacognitively metacognitively process should I step first with my right foot or my left foot, you know? I think that's the kind of choices that underlie the unfolding of the inanimate universe, this kind of instinctive, non-deliberate, non-metacognitive choices. But something that unfolds instinctively can still unfold according to a purpose, to a telos uh, According to an instinctive preference, Schopenhauer would called it would have called well has called it an instinctual striving, uh, what I call uh, the universal consciousness at large, Schopenhauer called the will and the will strives towards something. the will strives towards the metacognition that it has achieved in the form of human beings in order to understand what it's undergoing, to understand its own unfolding. I think we are uh, the universe's way to metacognize itself, to understand what it's doing, what is driving it. There is some kind of instinctive will uh, driving the unfolding of the universe. After all, the universe is not static. It's, it's changing, it's evolving, it's going somewhere that has to be driven by some kind of intention, even if it's not deliberate, even if it's not planned out. Uh, there is an impulse, there is an intention uh, even if it is just instinctive. And uh, the universe now has a chance to metacognize that, to understand that at a metacognitive level through us. Um, but for as long as we are locked up in mainstream physicalism, you know, the absurdities uh, of materialism, uh, we will just uh, close our eyes to that.
0: Yeah, that's the idea of the universe becoming aware of itself, you know, a phrase that I've read probably like a thousand times. I just want to take a brief sojourn down a cul-de-sac uh, a brief sidebar about artificial intelligence uh, this is something that i've discussed at great length many times on the show and in fact in recently and upcoming i've got a um, clutch of uh, presentations that're going to be dealing quite extensively with this uh, you touch upon this in your book i've always felt and it's been borne out by what i've gleaned over the years that a lot of the hopes and promise of the development of AI and other related uh, areas such as transhumanism misunderstand the nature of consciousness. And in your book, you liken uh, the arising of AI with abiogenesis, which you mentioned earlier, to quote you in the book, uh, the differences between flipping microelectronic switches and actual metabolism are hard to overemphasize. That is to say, no amount of simulating the patterns of information flow of biology is going to be biology as such. And in the context of what we've been saying, any and all AI and transhumanist projects are like everything. They're within universal consciousness. And I find the same thoughts occurring when people start talking about uploading or transferring individual human consciousness to, you know, (laughs) clouds and devices and everything else. All of this is already within this, that that what I referred to earlier is (laughs) overmind, to borrow Arthur C. Clarke's phrase.
1: Yes, you know, the latest season of that uh, sci-fi series, Black Mirror, it's very well done, very interesting, but, uh, you know, it's ridiculous at times with this idea of uploading consciousness, uh, personal consciousness. Uh, Let me try to clarify a couple of important points. I'm um, an AI engineer by education i have um, my master's was on on, on artificial intelligence in, many years ago 20 lots of years ago uh, but nonetheless I'm still involved with AI in my daily work uh, I do not think that AI is impossible at all on the contrary i'm I'm very convinced that artificial intelligence is completely tenable to a level that maybe today we can't even really imagine uh, I even think that uh, We can artificially create intelligence at human level and maybe beyond. But intelligence is not consciousness. Intelligence is a particular modality of processing information in a way that we would consider intelligent by analogy. It's a very clever way of processing information and and arriving at intelligent actions, uh, ways to react to the environment in an intelligent way. That's all possible, but it doesn't mean that the artificial intelligence, uh, that its computations will be accompanied by, by personal experience, by a dissociated conscious inner life the way you and I have. We have absolutely no reason to think that. We have absolutely no reason to think that our cell phones are conscious or that our home thermostats are conscious in and of themselves. In other words, that there is something it's like to be my cell phone in and of itself, or that there is something it's like to be my home thermostat in and of itself. I think my cell phone and my home thermostat are all arbitrarily delineated segments of the inanimate universe as a whole. I do think there is something it is like to be the the inanimate universe as a whole, but the cell phone and the thermostat are just parts of it, just like individual neurons are parts of my brain there's nothing it's like to be an individual neuron in my brain. There is only something it is like to be my brain as a whole. In other words, me. The same reason, I think there is only something it is like to be the inanimate universe as a whole. Not a phone, not a home thermostat, not a computer. Because when we entertain this idea of artificial consciousness, uh, what is behind this is not only the creation of consciousness itself under idealism, you don't need to create consciousness because everything already unfolds in consciousness, as you as you as you mentioned. Uh, consciousness cannot be created. All creation happens within consciousness and by means of consciousness, and every creation is made of consciousness. Uh, but when people talk about artificial consciousness, this, they mean more than that. They mean that not only the thing is conscious, but the consciousness of that thing is delineated by its own structure. In other words. The consciousness of that computer uh, that supposedly supposedly creates instantiates artificial consciousness is delineated by the boundaries of the computer itself, in other words, it's dissociated from the rest of consciousness so this idea of artificial consciousness boils down to the creation of alters of universal consciousness under idealism uh, The attempt that then is made is the attempt to induce artificially the formation of a dissociated altar of universal consciousness through silicon systems, for instance. Is that reasonable? I don't think it's reasonable at all. Why? Because the extrinsic appearance, the image of dissociated altars of universal consciousness is metabolism, is biology. You know, nature is telling this to us all the time. That's what a dissociated alter looks like, biology a metabolizing organic body. I have no reason to believe that a silicon computer would be the image of a dissociated alter, because I already have a comparison. It's totally different. So I think this idea that if you just, you know, simulate the patterns of information flow in an organic brain, you simulate those in a silicon computer, that the silicon computer will become conscious, it's as absurd as to think that if I simulate... Kidney function on my computer, then my computer will begin urinating on my desk. I mean, the stimulation of the phenomenon is not the phenomenon. This is a, you know, a, a basic, uh, a basic fact. <laughs> you have to have a very basic sense of plausibility to understand that. And 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 I think some of these people working on artificial consciousness lack this this basic fundamental sense of plausibility and, and they delude themselves but
0: as you mentioned earlier they're working under the shadow of these uh, assumptions about how things are well, what you just said actually that, that basically explains the origin of life, doesn't it? If the metabolizing organism marks the boundary of the dissociated altar with universal consciousness then that's how life arises and that's Gets us around, if I can put it like that, this great mystery, because there's been some experimental scientific attempts, haven't there, over the centuries to sort of quote unquote create life, uh, whether it's been just speculating about how life might have arisen uh, spontaneously. But also, you know, that I can't remember the name of it. But you know, the, the famous experiment with the um, amino acids. So you, I'm sure you know the one i mean. Yeah, I,
1: I, I know what you're what you're referring to, but I don't remember the name either. <laughs> so that, that, yeah, well, here we go. There's the,
0: you know, amongst other things in this are so uh, there's the explanation for the origin of life and indeed the universe and everything. So I think we're
1: ticking off a few boxes here tonight, which is good. Well, let me let me dare to disagree with you. Okay, there, Greg. <laughs> Um, I don't think I have explained the origin of life, uh, a biogenesis, and I'll tell you why. Um, I, I, I transposed the problem into a different one. Now the problem is how or why the first dissociated altar formed in universal consciousness. That's the transposition here. Uh, uh, the formation of the first altar is how the, the process looked like from a first-person perspective. And abiogenesis, the rise of life, is all the same process looks like from a second or third person perspective, from across a dissociative boundary. So it's two forms, two languages to, to describe the exact same thing, the one process. Uh, but I didn't explain why universal consciousness underwent dissociation to begin with. Why did that happen? Why was the first dissociated alter form. Was that a deliberate choice? I don't think it was because I don't think universal consciousness can think deliberately. I mean, the stability of the laws of nature suggests that if anything, the universe unfolds according to very stable instincts, predictable instincts, like crocodile behavior. Uh, uh, Nature doesn't seem to change its mind and behave in a different way from one way to the other. So the unfolding seems very instinctive. And and in that case, the formation of the first altar was not deliberate. It was itself instinctive. Uh, why and how it happened? Was that of, was that because of some instinctive drive, some instinctive purpose, some instinctive striving? I think so, but I never really elaborated on that. I think the mystery of abiogenesis, the formation of the first altar is still out there.
0: Well, I, I was thinking more that you'd Set out perhaps how as opposed to why. I'm not sure we can know why that may be something in our future that, you know, that may be part of this process will be somewhat circular. Yeah. Uh, and we'll, we'll come back to uh, a realization that will explain why. So now I, I simply meant a, a how within the model that you've set out. Well, I talked earlier about intuitions and sort of sixth sense discernments about how things have arisen and it's interesting that often many of us have a sense of something other uh, and this goes back to touches not only upon the ancient wisdom traditions I spoke about earlier but about moments that, that most of us have during our lives in sensing, apprehending something beyond ourselves and some sense of drive and purpose and very often vaguely articulated but it's something that we feel When you, in a section in your book, you talk about neuroscientific evidence to support idealism, which is, you know, basically the rubric under which your, your thesis, uh, falls. And it's interesting that there are times when the dissociative boundary can become porous and it lends then support and credence, uh, to your thesis. I'm thinking about things, as you point out, like brain trauma, um, or the use of psychedelics, for example, when we seem to perceive something wider. When you know Huxley's you know gates of sorry doors of perception are if not open then at least ajar. All of those ideas and evidence from those different experiences, if you feed them back into your ideas, your thesis, then they they find their place. I think, and it again, it's these are other phenomena that that you help to make sense of, or at least add more layers of explanation to potential explanation.
1: Yes, I mean, under my view, if everything is unfolding within one universal consciousness, what I have to explain is why extrasensory perception is not happening all the time, right? Because after all, we are all in one mind. Uh, and I explain that through this idea of dissociation, that's much more elaborated upon uh, in, in the book, and just we are just hinting at it here. Um, but of course, dissociative boundaries do not need to be perfect. They can be porous. In fact, Uh, a dissociative process, can be uh, interfered with. Um, I think ordinary, normal brain function reflects two things. One, uh, uh, the experiential contents of that alter, its thoughts, its emotions, its memories, and so on. But it reflects also the dissociative mechanism itself. The dissociative mechanism itself looks like something that we would call certain patterns of brain function. It must look like something because it's there, and if it's observed from across its boundary, it must look like something. So, some patterns of normal, ordinary brain function must correspond to the dissociative mechanism itself. So, if you interfere with those patterns of normal brain function, be it chemically through psychedelics, or through uh, physiological stress like uh, cardiac arrest or exposure to the elements or, uh, 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 or exhaustion, uh, or be it through certain meditation techniques that will interfere with those patterns of brain function. If you interfere in any way with those patterns of brain function that correspond to the dissociative mechanism, you may impair the dissociative mechanism. And what would that feel like from a first-person perspective if my dissociative mechanisms are impaired? Well, dissociation, dissociation will reduce, and that means that I that I will experience an influx of insight, information, emotion, a broader sense of self than I ordinarily have because I will be less dissociated. In other words, I will be I will be more connected to things that I ordinarily consider to be beyond myself, to be outside myself—insights, notions, ideas, thoughts, feelings—that I ordinarily am um, dissociated from. Those would come rushing back in if I interfere with those dissociative processes in any way, chemical, meditative, or whatever. And and guess what? If you look at the literature, that's exactly what we see. It's exa- even. Uh, The so-called acquired uh, savant syndrome, where people have uh, uh, physical trauma to the brain, bullet wounds, the advancement of dementia and and other diseases that physically compromise normal brain function, Uh, those people sometimes experience an influx of insight, of knowledge, of memories, of information that they were ordinarily not able to access. Uh, That's exactly what you see in the literature, and I consider that empirical Uh, confirmation is too strong, but uh, a very compelling empirical basis uh, uh, for the theory I'm putting forward.
0: Well, you mentioned psychedelics, as did I. From my own experience of those sort of substances, my immediate takeaway was a a very vital, uh, striking sense that there is one entity and I'm part of it, but that's not immediately apparent to me when I'm in a normal waking state of consciousness.
1: Yeah, what you what you're referring to uh, reminds me of a, a little personal story. Um, I have a friend who is a, a science journalist. I'm not going to mention his name, although I don't think he would he would I don't think he would mind. But just to be on the safe side, um, I was having dinner with him a few years ago. Yeah, back in California, and we were talking about these things and about the ideas I have, and I mentioned to him that i was I was working on this model of dissociation as the the the, the underlying phenomenon behind the emergence uh, emergency of life and this idea that you know the first person perspective of the inanimate universe is just conscious inner life um, and that it dissociates itself into altars and each altar is a living being. And I was explaining that to him over dinner. And I and I could see on his face uh, that I had his full attention. His eyes were growing, you know. And as I was talking, his attention was increasing. I was clearly uh, touching on something there. And uh, so I finished my story. And, and then uh, there was a, a pause and a few moments of silence. And then he told me, you know what, Bernardo? Years ago, decades ago, when I was doing psychedelics, um, I had um, a trip. In which this is exactly the idea that came to me in the trip, that there is only one mind and this mind sort of got crazy, went nuts. <laughs> His words for dissociative identity disorder, this, this universal dissociation, he, he called it craziness. And then it split itself off into these pieces, this, 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 this dissociated alters. And, and that was exactly uh, the insight the subjective insight he had during the trip which echoes what you're saying um well i'm i'm i'm, I'm happy to hear all this because it uh, if anything it substantiates the model i'm putting forward i it also left me with a feeling
0: that as unfashionable as terms such as meaning and purpose are that i came away from those experiences with the sense of those things and i've nothing in science or theology has ever turned me away from that or, or made me lean more towards them if you see what i mean after those experiences i didn't need anything or anyone else to confirm anything it's good to have that it's been great to read your work and feel a sense of vindication and belonging and eureka moments but there, there was something absolutely unshakable that i experienced
1: yeah, I think, look, only first, first person experience, direct experience is really transformational. Um, what I'm doing is just trying to give validation to the possibility of that first person experience, trying to help people give themselves intellectual permission to experience these things without them being dismissed immediately afterwards. Uh, but I don't think a theory, a conceptual structure like I'm putting forward in itself, is transformational. Uh, It just gives people permission to undergo the transformation themselves. And indeed, you know, if 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 the entire universe, if nature itself is fundamentally mental, fundamentally experiential, uh, then the notion of meaning and purpose uh, uh, is not only tenable, it, it, it becomes intrinsic to the unfolding of nature. Because if nature is unfolding, if it is dynamic, if it's changing and going somewhere, as opposed to just remaining the same, holding its state indefinitely, if it's not holding its state, but it's going somewhere, that ought to be because of some kind of impetus, some kind of impulse, a mental impulse, a desire, instinctive as it may be, uh, to go somewhere, to achieve something. Um, I'm saying these things metaphorically. A desire to... To be in another state, um, and, and and that desire is still is, is, is of course. A, it, it entails a purpose, even if it's not a deliberate purpose, even if it's not a planned-out purpose, but just instinctive. It is still a purpose. It is still an attractor, an internal attractor that is pulling the universal mind somewhere towards something which may still be unfathomable unfathomable to us but which I think and suspect very strongly, it has something to do with achievement of conscious metacognition, uh, self-reflection, which is currently embodied in us.
0: Well, I think that's essentially what keeps us going through life, even when we know we're going to die.
1: Surely, and and you see, if we are dissociated alters, and what we call life is just the image of that dissociation, then death is just the end of that dissociation. It's the end of the dissociative boundary. And then all the insights that we've accumulated within our lives as altars, and which have been within the boundaries uh, of our altar, they are seeded out, they are spread uh, into consciousness at large uh, upon the end of that dissociation, upon the collapse of that boundary. And this may very well be the meaning of life, as far as we know.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, if not the why of life and death, then certainly here's here's the potential how. As we bring things to a close uh, today, Bernardo, perhaps we should just say a word about the psychology of physicalism and the implications of idealism. Your your thesis. Uh, This is something that uh, you deal with towards the end of your book, and we touched upon at the top there. Actually, a lot of the ideas that you've set out here, although they're out there, not new. They're available, very much like some of the fundamental insights of quantum physics. This information has not percolated through society or the scientific community even. We can ask, how has physicalism dominated the cultural conversation for so long? And this is maybe something that's just a few centuries old, since the scientific uh, revolution onward and you used the phrase cultural acclimatization i think in your book <laughs> and as a species in in our in our limited understanding of our situation we suffer from a lot of neurosis and fear and we have tremendous need for certainty and a feeling that we're in control and i think that that leads us to come to premature conclusions about things whether it's through uh, religion or spirituality or materialistic science. We want to know that the answers are in, that we understand what's going on, that we're on top of things and we're in control. So I think we settle for what appears to, what, theories that appear to answer all these things and then we feel that we can move on. But the, we keep getting dragged back to the questions and that's because they, for many people they, they haven't actually been answered. And I would add a further point to all of this is that a lot of And we can see this certainly in the news in the past few days. There's been a lot of traumatic evidence to back this up. Our misapprehension about our situation, about reality, in an everyday context, it leads to tremendous uh, societal and cultural conflict, some of which is violent. So as much as we're moving forward because we're driven to do that, you mentioned natural teleology, we're our own worst enemies
1: sometimes. Yes, I mean... uh Lots to comment on what you said. You you alluded to control uh, and the psychology behind uh, uh, mainstream physicalism. Control is definitely a big thing. I mean, it it has been shown that, for instance, um, a large motivation for um, uh, religious people has to do with control by proxy, Uh, although the ego can't control the unfolding of natural events on its own if it believes that there is a higher agency that has that power and which is aligned with the ego in terms of, you know, value systems and intentions, then we achieve some form of control by proxy because although we can't control nature, there is this higher entity which can and will do it according to our own preferences and, and, and value system. But the same thing applies to mainstream physicalism. Uh, uh, mainstream physicalism is a a unprecedented attempt uh, by humanity to achieve control to achieve the control of nature Uh, projects like the large hadron collider at cern in which i've worked uh, a few years of my life uh, um, have spent billions of dollars to understand nature to have a closed model of nature's behavior the standard model of particle physics now, what's the impetus behind that? It's a form of of of, of control. It's uh, because it, even if you can't decide how nature you will unfold, if you understand how it works and if you can predict how it will unfold, that's already a form of control, and it already reduces anxiety a lot. Um, the, the big elephant in the room is is, is meaning. Human beings are meaning seeking animals. Now, Paul Tillich already mentioned that. Uh, uh, Viktor Frankl, uh, talked about the will to meaning as opposed to, you know, Nietzsche's will to power and Freud's will to pleasure and Schopenhauer's will to life and, and, and whatnot. Uh, he, he postulated that meaning is the greatest human value. It's above leisure. It's above power. It's above all else. And I, I go along with that. I think we can endure anything so long as it's not senseless, so long as we can see meaning and, and purpose in it. And I don't think physicalists are exceptions. I mean, they portray their views as a completely objective, completely impartial view, uh, not polluted by uh, wish fulfillment maneuvers and this kind of psychological, could, uh, no, no, psychological self-deception strategies. But in fact, they are they are very highly driven by the search for meaning. It's just that, as we understand in psychology today, um, there are many sources of meaning. It's not only the religious uh, transcendent source. Meaning can be achieved through uh, control, through uh, self-validation, uh, through uh, uh, um, uh, surviving through your work. I mean, you may die, but uh, you achieve meaning by knowing that the work you leave behind will survive you. Or by being part of something bigger than you, it's this big in the corporate world, people see the meaning of their lives uh, in, in in the fact that they are part of a company, something that's bigger than, than they are and it will survive them. Um, so when physicalists lost that source of transcendent meaning, when they deny God, deli- deny religion, deny the, etern- the, the eternality of the soul, uh, they they fluidly compensate for that by increasing the meaning they achieve from other sources, the sources I've just mentioned. Uh, So physicalism is as much uh, driven by a psychological need to achieve meaning as any other metaphysics, as any other theory of the nature of reality. And this is what I try to explain in the book.
0: Well, I mentioned a moment or two ago about these differing views of reality as sources of conflict. And for some people... The big ideas that we've been discussing seem inconsequential in some ways. It's like a luxury, you know, it's an intellectual debate, but why does any of this matter? But I think it's quite to the contrary, it's essential to our existence because it implies responsibility and the idea that our actions have consequences and that if we are all part of one entity, whatever that is, then... What we do in life matters, uh, on every level, even the the most mundane and what we would consider to be the most mundane levels. Every action, every thought is important and we're fundamentally interconnected. And I know that's a a dreadful cliche of the new age, but there's, (laughs) there's a truth underlying that. And to be more upbeat, there's tremendous promise for, uh, humanity and life, you know, in general and going forward into the future. So, you know, this, there's a lot of positives to take from this. is not an abstract intellectual cul-de-sac.
1: Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I think, you know, I acknowledge one thing. Uh, people who are facing uh, severe survival challenges constantly, for these people, people who are in a war zone, for instance, or people who do not know where the next meal will come from. Uh, for these people, philosophical discussions may indeed be uh, a luxury. Um, they are too occupied with uh, staying alive uh, to discuss the more sophisticated points of the nature of reality and the meaning of existence, and the relationship between self and the world and so on. Uh, luckily, most people Uh, in the civilized world today are not in that condition. Most of us are not uh, in a war zone. Uh, Most of us uh, have a roof above our heads, uh, have the luxury of having a computer or a cell phone uh, in order to listen to this podcast, have the time to do this, uh, know where the next meal uh, is coming from, have access to clean water, basic facilities, and so on. Now, for these majority in the Western world, at least, uh, I think the question of meaning is 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 fundamental. Because what what is life? What is it that gives coherence to life? It is our own internal narratives. It, It it's our view of what reality is, of who we are in relation to that reality, our view of what what's a good life our view of what's meaningful and what is senseless and useless, Uh, we leave our internal narrative. It is this internal narrative that converts the raw pixels of the screen of perception into a coherent storyline, which we call our lives. Otherwise, it would be just pixels. There would be no objects, no events, nothing with any sense, nothing with any... Uh, connotation or denotation. It would be just perceptual noise. Uh, It is our internal narrative that groups these sense data, these pixels, into objects, uh, into events that unfold in time, and and which attributes to these objects and events uh, the significance they have to our lives, whatever they are. So our internal narrative, our worldview, our understanding of what reality is and what, and of what we are in relation to that reality determines the life we live ultimately. Otherwise, it would be just pixels. So it's very important that we nurture this internal narrative, uh, that we are observant about uh, uh, where we put uh, our trust in and the things we, we choose to believe in, at least as the most viable and tenable hypothesis because those choices uh, uh subconscious as they may be non-deliberate as they may uh, as then as they may be or uh, enforced by cultural pressures as they as they may be those choices will give the color and tone of our lives the lives we we are living so it it's it's impossible to overestimate uh, the importance of being careful and 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 attentive uh, to the stories uh, that that basically create the lives we live.
0: Closing thought, Bernardo. Uh, towards the end of your book, you speak about an everyday struggle to actually apprehend reality as mental, and then perhaps the moments, the difference between that and the moments in which you can. Can you even begin to describe what that's like? The only... Analog, I can perhaps think of from my point of view would maybe be that psychedelic experience of one entity.
1: Hmm. Yeah, the idea there is that you know even if you are completely convinced of what I am saying or of what I have written in the book, even if you are completely convinced of it at, at at the conceptual level, even if you even if your intellect buys fully into it and say, okay, this this must be the truth of, or this is as close as possible to the truth. Um even if you buy in conceptually into that, um, you still may look out and see a material world around you. And most of the times, that's the world I see uh, around me. you know, the the inertia, the momentum that the mainstream cultural narrative carries is formidable. Uh, you may conceptually convince yourself that what's going on is different. Uh, but then when you stop thinking about it, you instinctively fall back into that background story that is uh, given to you by the culture, by your education, by your parents, by your doctor, by your teachers at school, um, um, and which has sunk in to a level below your critical intellect, below the abstract level of your conceptualizations, and which colors your life uh, unless you're very attentive and very critical to that underlying narrative. And... I, myself, uh, uh, only occasionally am able to really directly experience the world around me as mental, as essentially a part of who I am at the lowest, most primordial levels uh, of my mentation. Uh, It it can happen. I have had this experience uh, many times. It's not my usual experience of the world. When I go to work, I sort of... Fall back into the mainstream cultural narrative because it's utilitarian. It's convenient and, and it doesn't, it, it allows me to communicate to other people and be perceived as a normal person uh, myself. Uh, but the apprehension of the world around you as mental, not only at a conceptual level, but at a heartfelt level uh, is for, is an experience that can, cannot be described. I, I don't know. It's it, it, it's beyond concepts. It, it precedes conceptualization. It, it 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 it's a gut experience. Um, you just it, it's a kind of recognition. It's a kind of a, a of a remembering. It, it it's not a new insight. It's a remembrance of something that you knew long 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 back, perhaps before birth, uh, um, but which you perceive today as extraordinarily familiar. And at the same time, counterintuitive, because it contradicts the mainstream cultural narrative. So it's a kind of a an experience of cognitive dissonance, but a, a very powerful uh, one. And yeah, I'm afraid I can't describe that, but I am with you that uh, the closest thing you can get to it is perhaps certain psychedelic states, which have the disadvantage that those states are not something that you can... Um, to say base your life on because you know you you need the compound to begin with and usually you take time off and you sort of isolate yourself to undergo the experience it's not something that can be part of your daily ordinary interactions with the world that's the disadvantage but um, uh, an apprehension of the mental nature of the world on the net in your ordinary life is possible it's very difficult but it is possible and when it's achieved it's phenomenal
0: Well, the the psychedelic experience doesn't have to be part of your everyday life because when people have asked, people who haven't experienced it have asked me about it, I've said you can't go back. Even once, you take that with you, you go forward, you can't go back. So that door is opened, that sense is there. So it doesn't have to be something that's part of day-to-day life anymore, but it's just like a revelation. So it's you carry it with you always. It it
1: depends on the person. I, I know people who have an an astonishing ability to revert back to ordinary consensus reality and the mainstream cultural narrative within 48 hours of a mind-boggling psychedelic (laughs) experience.
0: (laughs) Okay, well, positive note note for the future. Uh, Dinosaurs were dissociated alters of universal consciousness. (laughs) They're no longer with us, except perhaps in the, the birds and the trees in some form. All the news that, and I've alluded to this earlier, all the things going on in the world at the minute, some people wonder whether, uh, human beings are going to make it in the medium to long term future. I think a lot of the troubles in the world at the minute may be evolutionary pressures pushing us forward, but even if we don't, then something else will arise. That is my sense. In that sense, I mean, op- I remain optimistic about the future of the project of reality if not always about the particular manifestation of it that you and i represent
1: yeah, i think ultimately i am with you there there is no ultimate reason for concern uh, whatever the universe is creating or destroying it's just universal consciousness doing it to itself. Ultimately, nothing is lost. It's a configuration of consciousness that arises and goes away, and another configuration arises and goes away, like one dream re- being replaced by another. Ultimately, nothing's being lost. At the same time, uh, I do think there is an instinctive telos, an instinctive purpose behind uh, the unfolding of nature, and that is this uniquely human capacity for conscious metacognition, the capacity to be self-aware, the capacity to think about our own thoughts and emotions as, as objects of meta thoughts and emotions. I think this, this is ultimately the instinctive purpose that is being pursued. And, 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 you know, after three and a half billion years of evolution, maybe a little more, maybe 3.8, uh, here we are. We have developed this capacity, and as as far as we know, uh, no other living creature on this planet, or in any other planet, because as far as we know, there aren't other living creatures out there. Uh, None of them has developed this capacity, and we have. So, I think it would be a real pity, something to to be really regretful of, if we would wipe ourselves out of this planet. Because I don't know what kind of effort and time would be required to reproduce the trick afterwards.
0: Well, I've just one final thought I've got to share that you, you um prompted in my mind. You were talking about three and a half billion years. So when we think about time and space, as people will learn, if they read your book, time and space, of course, are within universal consciousness, not the other way around. So let's leave people with that mind-bending <laughs> <laughs> thought. Um today, Bernardo, we've been talking about your latest book, the idea of the world. A multidisciplinary argument for the mental nature of reality. If anyone listening to this is remotely interested in the big existential questions, they need to get this book to read it, to understand and if they don't understand it, to read it again. It's available everywhere, just uh, if you'd like to share details of your website with listeners and of course anything else you'd like to put out there.
1: My website is uh, Bernardo Castro with a K uh, dot com and from there you can find links to everything the books uh, my papers uh, uh, if um, any of your reader uh, any of your audience uh, is financially constrained there is an alternative for the book there is my own PhD thesis, and some of the papers in the book are freely available online as well uh, the story will not be as tidy and as accessible as the book is but it, it is something it's better than nothing if you can't afford the book um, there are also links to my youtube channel lots of videos um, so everything is linked from uh, and uh, that's the starting point
0: splendid well bernardo once again thank you so much for joining us today on legalizefreedom.com
1: thanks for having me it was a pleasure great